Hello and welcome to another episode of the Paddock Pass podcast. On today's show, we will be answering some of the questions which our listeners sent in uh, and giving our opinion of them. Um, my name is David Emmett. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at, at @motomatters. With me is Neil Morrison from Crash.net and Road Racing World. You can find me on Twitter at Neil Morrison87. And Stephen English, and you can follow me on Twitter at Steve English GP. Right, well, before we get started, uh, we hope you're following the show on Facebook, which is facebook.com slash paddockpasspodcast and Twitter at paddockpasspod. Uh, and if you happen to listen to us on iTunes, make sure you leave a review and give us a rating because it really helps other MotoGP fans find the show. Right. Well, on to the first question. And the first question is from uh, uh, Sheherazada M at Sheherazada 2 uh, Do you think Indonesia has a chance to host MotoGP in 2017 until 2019? Um, do I think Indonesia... Uh, what I do think is that um, MotoGP and especially Honda and Yamaha are absolutely desperate to go to Indonesia uh, because of the... Um it's such a big market. It's such a huge market for the for uh, for the manufacturers that they really want to go there. Um, everyone is really interested. I think all of us uh, have really big following in uh, um, motor or well following on social media from Indonesia. So yeah, it's just a question of whether the track is going to be ready. As far as I know, the Centul they'll be going to Centul. Centul needs a lot of work doing to it. So yes. As long as the track's ready, then I'm I'm 100 certain that they will go. They've said that um, I think uh, they've they've reserved a place in the calendar for 2017, but that is um, that's very much dependent on the the track being homologated to a suitable level. Um, and I think they've um, they've called in Herman Tilke to make some of the uh, the proposed changes to the the, the layout of the track. Um, I think they were going to to try and um, add extra um, extra length, a few extra uh, 100 meters to the track with perhaps um, three additional corners to the current layout. Um, but um, again, this is one of the things where, you know, it seems to have been in the news the last couple of years that Indonesia is in line to to be added to the calendar and we've yet to see it uh, yet to see it there. So as you said, David, it's very much dependent on, on the changes and whether they can be implemented. Yeah, I think um, for me, 2017 might be a bit of a bit of a stretch to actually have it ready in time for that but i think we're definitely going to get to indonesia over the course of the next couple of years i know david me myself and yourself have talked to lynn jarvis a few times about why yamaha spent so much of their time sending lorenzo to indonesia and just the size of the market is is huge there neil you, you used to live in jakarta so you would have seen just the sheer volume of mm. small capacity bikes scooters that are around the city yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then really, I, I think along with um, with like the English Premier League football, MotoGP is almost on the same on the same kind of level in terms of uh, popularity. Um, when I was living there, I was amazed um, when you'd be like walking down the streets, there would be, you know, little taxi ranks uh, where people would kind of hang out during the day. Anytime a MotoGP race was on, those like little ranks would be filled with just like people passing by in the street, stopping, stopping off towards the race. Um, you look at uh, you know the sponsorship on the Repsol Honda machines on the Movistar Yamaha machines. They have Indonesian sponsorship there. Um, so yeah, as you said, they're all too aware of, of the, the the potential of that market, the, the size of that market, and really to to kind of reward that and maybe get some more out of it. It makes complete sense to have a race there. Yeah, I mean the 
uh, I think that first of all, the biggest challenge is, of course, uh, corruption, because corruption is a huge problem throughout, uh, throughout, especially in Indonesia. Um, it's one of the more difficult uh, parts of the uh, of the world, as far as that's concerned. But that is, uh, well, the corruption has upsides and downsides. And the upside is if someone powerful enough is backing your project, then you can get things done. And I think there is uh, a, a lot of support at quite a high level for MotoGP in uh, in Indonesia. So that should happen. And technically, also, I think it's a it's a bit of a shame that Herman Tilker is going to be doing the uh, doing the track again because. Well, we've seen what Herman Tilke does with with motorcycle racing tracks, and generally, it's just ruined them. <laughs> so, uh, I would have much preferred to see someone else uh, uh, do it. But uh, well, but you, you well, you can't really complain as long as you get something. Yeah, corruption lines the pockets of people, David. But it's a good thing that, like in MotoGP, we've had no instances over the course of the last twelve months where there's been <laughs> any semblance of corruption being brought up. The one thing about Tilke is he does have a, a have a tendency or a, a history of building boring tracks. But over the course of the last 10 years, he's, he's changed his style an awful lot. And some of the best tracks that we've seen over the course of the last 15 years have actually been so-called Tilkadromes, like Istanbul is a great track. And he's, he's had a few more Don't as well. Don't you dare say China. China. <laughs> Olivia Jacques was a big fan of China. Um, <laughs> the other thing about uh, going back to Indonesia is 2017 would be the 20th anniversary of the last time we, we raced in Indonesia as well. And I think... In in that weekend's race, Rossi, Biaggi, and Okada all won. So, at the very least, uh, Rossi would be able to to say he's the only man to have won a race in Indonesia as well. If we go back there next year, yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, you've got to fancy uh, uh, Rossi wanting to go there next. Uh, wanting to go there in two thousand seventeen. So. Yeah, I think along with the track, um, one of the things that needs to be con uh, considered about you know the redesign of the location is just the accessibility to uh, to the track. Like Jakarta, uh, you know, from just my personal experience, was one of the worst cities I've encountered in terms of uh, traffic. You know, the traffic problem there is just horrendous, um, and Sento is just quite a bit outside the city. Um, so in terms of um, trying to attract people to come to the to the event um, from uh, for outside Indonesian borders, you know, the, at the moment there doesn't appear, when I was there, which is a few years ago, there, there definitely wasn't like an infrastructure in place to, you know, get from the center of the city out to the track. It would very much be, you know, you had to have to have your own car, your own transportation, and it would be quite a lengthy um quite a lengthy trip if you were staying somewhere in the city centre to get out towards there. So I think there's also kind of um, issues at hand in terms of, you know, how they're going to make it a, a comfortable or a, an attractive event for, you know, people coming in from outside Indonesia. Yeah, yeah. I mean, exactly. Traffic is always a bit of a problem. It reminds me to a certain extent of the uh, Moscow World Superbike round where you had very, very similar uh, problem with no accommodation around it. And actually traffic coming out of Moscow was an absolute nightmare, apparently. So, um, And again, similar problems with, uh, how shall we say, um, uh, the race being dependent on political will rather than uh, actual sort of popularity. Although in... Obviously, Indonesia is different. No need to worry about popularity of MotoGP. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, it's probably time to go on to the next question, there, lads. Which one do you want to pick next? Uh, just go down the list. Okay, cool. Um, the next question we have is from Zara Daniela, and uh, you can follow her on Twitter at Zara Zahid. And she asks an almost impossible question: If we were to put all the aliens on an Aprilia around the Red Bull ring, who wins that race? <laughs> um, for me. 
one rider I'm immediately discounting is Lorenzo, but that's mostly because the Aprilia doesn't suit uh, carrying a lot of corner speed at the moment. We saw it uh, at uh, the Hareth test even, where John, Jonathan Ray was, was catching the Aprilia the whole way through the twisty sections of the track. So I think for me, with the electronics problems they have as well, given what's happened with the Honda this year and, and its electronic problems, I wouldn't be back in either Pedroza or, or Marquez. So I think just for sheer adaptability, I'll, I think I'd probably pick Rossi. What about you, David? Uh, well, uh, I see that Zara forgot to specify what kind of Aprilia. <laughs> uh, so if it's an Aprilia 250, then obviously the other, there's only one person who can win, and that would be Danny Pedrosa. Oh, uh, Dave, I'm putting my money on Jorge Lorenzo if it's an Aprilia 250. <laughs> the man showed what he could do on that bike. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it would be. It would be a much better race. It would definitely be a fantastic race to watch. Uh, Aprilia 500, all the same. If it's an Aprilia 500, the uh, the old V twin, then uh, you're definitely putting your money on uh, Williams, on, uh, Jeremy, on Lorenzo. Jeremy, <laughs> oh, all well, the way. A, apart from Jeremy, yes, that's right. But taking taking the fifth alien out of the equation, or perhaps we should call him the first alien. Um, uh, the uh, on a 500 Aprilia, then uh, you've got to go. I would definitely go with with Lorenzo uh, because that would be all about corner speed. Um, this year's or well this year's the 2015 Aprilia that's really difficult I I, will, I think I could follow your reasoning and that makes a lot of sense to me um, but then again you know maybe maybe Mark Marquez could ride around uh, the, the problems which the bike has so who knows and then of course there's a 2016 GP uh, RSGP which Aprilia is supposed to be binging we don't know what that looks like we don't know how good it's going to be so it, it's a Good and uh, it's a good question, but in reality, I think uh, if you ran the race four times, you'd probably get four different winners. Yeah, I would kind of go along with that. Um, if if we kind of assume that each rider has a, a preseason to set the bike up, uh, to kind of to get the setup um, to their liking, and they basically arrive at this race, this uh, hypothetical race that we're imagining, uh, with you know their own kind of setup, and they're quite happy with what it's like. I would say I think I would I would go for for Marquez just in terms of absolute raw speed um, and. The Ability to kind of ride around problems. Um, I think you would maybe have Jorge close behind that, um, with Rossi very close behind that as well. But then I think on, on given occasions, on given circuits, you would probably see Pedroza clearing off into the distance. If there was a race at Sepang, for example, I'd imagine Pedroza would would clear off there. Um, so I kind of agree with you, David. Depends on the circuit, depends on the situation. The top four in MotoGP are so closely matched um, that you know it's kind of impossible to tell. But I think. It, yeah, it, it, it's totally dependent on the track, on, you know, temperature, um, just the situation. Um, but I think if we're if we're looking at just raw speed, I think I would put Marquez just at the top of the bunch with Jorge close behind. You next, Neil. Uh, okay, so uh, the next question then is also from Zara Daniela. Thanks again, Zara, for getting in touch. Um, this one asks if any of us own any rider merchandise. Um, so I guess I'll start the ball rolling. I think the last time I bought some rider merchandise was when I was about 11 or 12 years old. Um, it's when I visited a British superbike race and I was kind of uh, infatuated with uh, with James Hayden on his uh, R7. I think that was 2001 on his Virgin Virgin Media R7 or Virgin Mobile R7. Um, and since that day, I haven't done that. Um, I've Whenever I kind of started working in, in this job, uh, I was kind of told that it's best your best advice not to wear any rider merchandise whenever you're turning up the pod um, debriefs or meetings or things like that so yeah we'll be going back about a good 
13 or 14 years, I would say, before the last, since the last time I, I did that. Steve, what about was you? Was that the same time that Stevie Hislop was on the, the Virgin uh, Island? No, it was the year after. The year after. Hislop, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, for me, uh, the last time I bought anything would probably be around the same time. But uh, as I'm sure David will agree, uh, free, <laughs> free stuff is free stuff. So I've got quite a bit of free gear from a few different writers. Um, I think you know, there's a few t-shirts from Eugene Laverty and uh, a few... Uh, hats from different different writers as well so yeah i mean i i could certainly concur that uh, uh writers get very upset when you turn up to their their debriefs in a eugene laverty t-shirt uh unless you happen to be turning up to a eugene laverty debrief in which uh, case you're welcomed with open arms um last time i bought any merchants actually the last time i bought a, a uh, rider merchandise was 2006 maybe uh, when I bought a Valentino Rossi hat but I didn't buy it from Valentino Rossi merchandise I bought it from Riders for Health where it was a second hand one which they were selling off for uh, uh, or maybe it was sort of excess stock which they were selling off for uh, you know to raise funds for, for Riders for Health so I felt I was helping as well and it was quite a nice hat and I then managed to leave it in a uh, restaurant in southern Germany when I was dry, riding down to um, Italy but then you know these things these things happen uh, uh, apart from that no it's mostly yeah you, you're, you're trying not to uh you know, buy too much stuff, and I get I get given so many T-shirts by uh, various people that uh, I'm actually having a problem throwing them out. My wife is getting is complaining that I've got too many T-shirts from my cupboards. The one other thing that I did buy actually was I was at the TT for the first time this year, so I bought a few TT T-shirts. But I don't think that really counts, does it, Neil? Nah, no, yeah, it doesn't count. Yeah, no, no, no. That's not a that's not a specific rider that you're uh, that you're championing there. Yeah, I'd just like also to add that I I was almost thrown out of a garage this year. Um, for having a Repsol Honda and notepad, um, so <laughs> if you imagine that they, they take it that seriously for having a notepad, imagine what it would be like if you turned up in a specific rider's t-shirt. So <laughs> best, uh, best to kind of you know just wear your normal, uh, you know, in my case, grubby t-shirts. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, completely. Yeah. Right. Next question um, from Porky Pine at BSAA77. Uh, why do all the Japanese manufacturers' MotoGP state their power figures at 260 bhp? Actually, I think most of them state their uh, horsepower figures as over 220 kilowatts, which I can't remember how to convert into into horsepower. Um, they well, they state their horsepower. The, 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 their stated power figures are completely meaningless. It's just a total lie, anyway, because they don't like really like to give away their uh, their horsepower. So I think they just pick a uh, pick a number which is plausible and pretend they all make the same power, whereas quite clearly they don't. There are the the Honda and Ducati are considerably more powerful than the uh, than the Yamaha and much, much more powerful than the Suzuki and Aprilia. Yeah, David, it's the same as saying I've got a five figure salary. No one's gonna give that any exact and it makes it seem like you've got a decent wage. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Because you can't tell the difference between uh, being on uh, being under minimum wage and uh, and nearly earning quite a nice little uh, tidy little salary. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Exactly. Plus, I noticed you didn't you didn't uh, you didn't specify currency either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're talking about Indonesian currency, right, Steve? <laughs> uh, well, I'm, I'm actually. What country did we go to this year that was just an insane 
Uh, I don't know. Yeah, Indonesia, Neil. Uh, do you want to take the next question there, Neil? <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. Okay, right. Just one second. Uh, what do you think? Should we go for this Umbrella Girls question? I'm not really. Tr- <laughs> I'm not really interested. I think we shouldn't interesting. go for it because I couldn't pronounce his name. That's why I said yeah. Neil. Why don't you take this question? <laughs> All right. Okay. Right. What do you think? Shall we, or shall we just go on to the? Yeah, go on to the next one. The next one's much more interesting. Okay. Right. Cool. Uh, right. So this next question is from Christian Ramon Marin, um, and he asks. Well, he says that it would be nice to hear your opinion about the future of both Maverick Vinales and Alex Rins. Okay. So. <clears throat> I noticed, David, that you wrote an article um, just after uh, New Year and you were making some bold predictions for the 2016 year and you said that uh, basically uh, both Maverick and Alex will be the subject of the most intense speculation regarding their futures for 2017. Um, Alex Rins obviously uh, will be competing in his second year of Moto2 this year, um, in which a year in which he is quite possibly the favourite to take the title. Um, and it's also Maverick's second year MotoGP, his second year with Suzuki. And I think he has, he has an option to stay with Suzuki for a third year. Um, but there is potential that he could he could, uh, he could could leave Suzuki at the end of this year. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, yes, they both, they're both going to be available next year. And to me, they are, uh, you know, they're, 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 if you like the top draft picks, they are the, the, the top riders which everyone is going to be, uh, is going to be looking for looking for and I think the key is going to be who leaves either Honda or Yamaha um, and once we find out a little bit about their about their plans either Lorenzo's plans or Rossi's plans um, I think there's no doubt that Mark will stay with uh, will stay with Honda once we know where the vacancies are then they then Mark or then both uh, Vinales and Rince will be slotted into whatever happens to be free yeah I think that for me you know both riders are going to be the the key young riders coming through for the next five years that all the all the manufacturers are going to look at. I think for Vinales, he showed this year from probably Aston onwards that he had a he had a, an edge over Aleish throughout the rest of the season. When you stood trackside, you looked at his riding style, he looks very similar to Lorenzo. So you'd imagine he'll suit the Yamaha. But he'll suit any bike really like he's shown one two fives, Moto three, Moto two, Moto GP that he can ride anything. And uh Every manufacturer is going to look for him. If you're Honda, you're probably you, you have to look long term. Danny Pedrosa's turning thirty, so there there isn't going to be you know another ten year run for Pedrosa. In all likelihood, he could be coming up to the the last two years, three years where he's a viable factory rider. So Honda might look to to take Vinales. Everything that I've heard is it's a two plus one deal, Neil. So. He has the option on his side whether to stay with Suzuki. So that makes it where he's he's in the driving seat to determine his future. I think for Rince, we've all heard for the last two years that Yamaha are looking for him. Um, Paul and Brad at Tech Trois, they're not going to get another year together in all likelihood. So it's whoever's going to finish ahead of those two riders will probably keep a Tech Trois seat. And then Yamaha will take Vinales or Rins if they can get them and plug them into Tech Trois. I think... Rince is, for me, an awesome rider. I think when you look at the uh, 2013 uh, Moto3 Championship, it was him against Vinales. It went down to the last metre, basically, and I think Rince, Rince was just hugely impressive. So basically, yeah, in his second year, he became a title contender, and I think whenever you compare him even to Alex Marquez, they came up through CEV together. They were teammates for a couple of years. They've both gone into Moto2 together. And for me, 
Alex Marquez may may have a, a Moto3 World Championship, but it's always been Rince that's been the more impressive rider. And I think he separated himself from pretty much everyone else that's been coming through the last few years, with the exception of Vinales. I think next year in Moto2, it's going to be a tough year because like, when you look at the riders that are in Moto2, I think it could be a, a great championship this year, which is something we haven't been able to say for the last couple of years. But if you're putting putting your money down, um, you'd definitely be back in Rins to be the, the champion for next year. Yeah, yeah. I think I saw some reports in Spanish in the, the Spanish press last week um, that were saying that uh, both riders were on Yamaha's list. Uh, obviously, they're they're still waiting to hear what Rossi's going to do, but that's not really news because I imagine they're they're on the list of, of any factory, really, to be honest. Um, but yeah, just um, kind of expand on what you were saying about about Maverick um, and Alex. You know, we're a big fan of both riders. I think both riders can make it to the absolute very top of the sport uh, in the coming years, and I think everything that Vinales did basically from the start of this year, um, showed that he is a potential uh, alien, as, as, as we call them, uh, a potential you know guy that could join that top four and could challenge for podiums regularly. Um, I kind of think that if he, you know, if you, if you put him on a Yamaha this year, he would be, um, he would be a guy that you'd be you know, expecting to be finishing on the podium um, quite regularly. Um, and it'll be very interesting to see how he, how he does with a Suzuki with a seamless gearbox and with potential um, a potential head start on the 2016 electronics uh, when compared to perhaps Yamaha or Honda. Yeah, I think the one thing as well is that um, you can't discount Ducati from any of this as well because they're going to have, if if we look at this year as an example, they're going to have a competitive bike again next year. Davizioso really failed to impress in the second half of the year and with Iannone having such an impressive season, I think he was top five for pretty much the entire year. It uh, it means that there's the potential there for another seat in a factory Ducati available as well. So when you think in terms of Iannone's come through from Pramac as well, there's there's definitely going to be factory contracts available with Ducati and these kind of riders are going to be up at the top of that list for, for them too. Yeah, I mean, the the most interesting dynamic uh, as far as I'm concerned is uh, I spoke to someone close to Honda recently and they said um, that Honda were really interested in uh, Alex Rintz. Uh, but the trouble is, of course, that... Um, there is some tension between Rince and uh, um, uh, and, uh, and Mark Marquez because of the history of uh, Emilio Alzamora and he used to manage Rince and then Rince felt that um, uh, Alzamora had basically engineered Alex Marquez's Moto2 title uh, by not get, by by favouring Alex Marquez over Alex Rince and so th- I think that's going to make things very very complicated and I also know that Tech 3 were trying to sign Alex Rince into MotoGP straight out of um, uh, Moto3 uh, at the same time as um, uh, Jack Miller went straight to uh, straight to MotoGP. So, yeah, there's a lot of interest there and it's going to be interesting to see where, where people get put. Yeah, absolutely. And I just think, like, um, when you look at, uh, at the, you know, you can't imagine that what that Valentino Rossi will be in the MotoGP class for too much longer. Let's hope that, you know, um, you know, let's hope that he does stay for, you know, beyond this year. Um, what you were saying, Steve, about Pedroza, you know, coming towards the end of, you know, perhaps his status as a, as a factory rider. It is great that we have, you know, three riders that we can look at, maybe even four, uh, maybe if you count Iannone or maybe even Scott Redding, depending on, you know, we'll have to see what he does this year. But it's great that we have riders that, 
you know, potentially could make that jump, you know, given the right equipment, given the right circumstances and surroundings. Yeah, because I think the one thing is the aliens got their name whenever there wasn't great depth in MotoGP. We went through a period where pretty much every lower class race was won by Spaniards and there just wasn't the the same kind of talent coming through that we have now. Whereas if you look at the Moto3 field, you look at the Moto2 field, there's an awful lot more quality in that grid now than there was even five, ten years ago. And I think if you were to, to look at Moto2 for next year, you've definitely got ten different guys that can win races. And that feeds through to where suddenly the aliens, while still being the best riders in the world, the gap between them and the very good riders isn't quite as great as what it was even whenever like 2012 whenever stoner was still racing yeah and i think also there's a there's a difference now in that when the 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 aliens came into moto gp uh they were in a situation the, the competition wasn't such that, that that it was almost impossible to win a race they came in being able to to beat races because they didn't have very many people they had to beat whereas uh you know maverick um or rince if rince comes in next year even if he gets a factory ride he's still got to beat uh marquez uh he's still got to beat uh maybe pedrosa he's still got to beat uh, Lorenzo, still got to beat Rossi to get to to um, to be able to do that, who are all riding at the best that they've ever ridden at. And to be able to do that is would be just an absolutely incredible achievement, a much greater achievement than when Lorenzo won his first race or Pedrosa or Rossi. Yeah, myself and Neil actually did something a few, well, last year where we looked at some grids through the years and the amount of race winners and world champions that came through that just to sort of put into or contextualize how competitive MotoGP is at the moment. And we looked at uh, the 2003 125 season and saw just in one race, there could have been 30 riders starting and there was 27 of them won a Grand Prix. And when you look at MotoGP now, suddenly you look through that grid. And if you were to take last year an example as an example, I think there's probably only about five guys that didn't win a world championship. Yeah. You know, yeah, and yeah. that and that that's what feeds into having so much competition through the back of the grid. Like Dave, do you remember whenever um Cal came to MotoGP first and he yeah. went out and he was a world superbike race winner, pole man, world super sport champion, and he went out at his first test thinking, This'll be fine, I'll be fine. There won't be any major difference between me and any of the other guys. I'll be able to be competitive here. And he said that he went out, he followed, I don't know who it was, but the first rider he followed would be would have been a guy at the back of the grid and he said fuck, this is actually difficult to keep up with him. And it took him pretty much the full season to feel comfortable on the bike. By the time he went into his second year, he he made big strides. Third year, he was really competitive. And it's that kind of thing of just being able to understand how competitive the field is. Absolutely, yeah. I think if you look at, um, you know, some of the statistics from 2015, you know, there were races which which proved that um, the the MotoGP Championship is as competitive, if not more so, than it, than it ever has been. I think in in Argentina, the top it was the first time ever in history that the the top twenty were separated by less than a minute. Um, and then at Phillip Island, I think the top twelve were it was the closest the top twelve had ever finished since two thousand and one. That was at Phillip Island. Um, you know, so you know, you're you're talking about a field here that um, you know if you are on the podium, you have you have done something exceptional. Neil, as I said, that follows into a question that we had from uh, Paul Yude, and you can follow him on Twitter, at Bellwith. And Paul's question was, do you agree that Rossi is the greatest of all time? And obviously, when you look at a stat like that from Argentina, where the, the top 20 are covered by a minute, 
And then you compare that to when Agostini was coming through or you compare it to the, the 70s and the 80s where a minute could separate the gap from first to second in some of Ago's races. And it just shows how much more competitive it is now and how much more difficult it is to achieve the stats that Rossi's achieved. Um, David, what's what's your opinion on being able to, to, to look at riders from different eras and comparing them? For a start... For a start, it's a bit of a, a pointless exercise because you can't uh, you can't compare them. You can't compare what Agostini did to what Rossi's doing, or what Marquez is doing, or what Lorenzo's doing, or uh, what Halewood did, or or any of them. Just because you know they were doing it was it's a completely different era. It's a, it's almost if you look at um, say Agostini versus Halewood. Uh, it's almost a completely different sport to, uh, uh, to, to to current racing. So it's it for a start, I don't think it's particularly. Uh, it, it's not a realistic comparison. What is clear, I mean, the, the, there are some things that that Agostini did, for example, which was just uh, absolutely astonishing. The fact that he went out to, uh, I remember, I think he went to Argentina because he didn't used to go to um, uh, the the overseas race just because it cost so much money, uh, and uh, he, usually by the time they were raced, um, he. He was already champion, and so one year I think he went to he went over to Argentina just because people kept on saying, "Well, you know, look, I won a GP, so I'm as good as Agostini." Some of the local riders, and he was so annoyed, and he uh, went there um, and basically lapped everyone. Uh, and this was on a uh, I think something like a four or five minute lap. So um, yeah, and and Agostini Ray raced. Absolutely, a hundred percent. Every time he went out, so he might have won by uh, a minute. Uh, there was no need for him to win by a minute. He could have won by ten seconds and just sort of cruised home, but he never did. He went out and uh, absolutely flat out. So, I think it's I think it's really really difficult. Uh, and it also it you can't say the greatest of all time because maybe you know maybe it is Maverick Vinales, but we don't know. You know maybe it's Fabio Quartararo, but we don't know because they haven't they they don't have enough races in them yet to uh, to be able to say. Uh, Neil, we'll leave David out of this question for now. Then, <laughs> what, what do you think? Uh, what what uh, if Valentino is the greatest of all time? Uh, yeah, I would say he is. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I think so. I think um, I think after he won his, his his last world championship in two thousand and nine, um, you you would possibly have him on. You know, in you know the top four, maybe the top three of all time. You know, alongside Hillwood, maybe with Ago, uh, with Kenny Roberts Senior as well, um, just because. By that stage, he had reinvented himself to to win on the 800, um, and that was in the face of kind of continued uh, this new kind of challenge that he was facing from Stoner, from Lorenzo, um, you know, guys that were at a higher level, to be frank, than the Gibranois and the Biagis of, of, of the past, of the 990 kind of MotoGP era. Um, and then, you know, to come back and reinvent himself yet again um, this year um, and last year, um, where he finished second in the championship, I thought was just uh, was stupendous. I mean, people. I think a lot of people would would you know people that maybe been watching motorcycle racing for 50, 60 years would still count Hillwood as you know possibly the most naturally gifted, fastest rider um, ever. Uh, and anyone that saw him race, you know, kind of seems to to share that opinion. Um, but I think you know what what kind of made Hillwood stand out above. Above anyone else was, you know, that kind of fairy tale comeback he made to the to the TT uh, in '78. Uh, he went back there in '79 and won again, you know, and that was just like fairy tale stuff, you know, something that uh, you couldn't even comprehend being away from the sport for so long. Um, but at the same time, Rossi was doing kind of what Hillwood did, 
you know, in his comeback, he was doing that, you know, every two weeks, you know, um, Hillwood's comeback was, was marvelous, but it was kind of like a one-off kind of thing, you know, for Rossi to come back, reinvent himself and to keep that consistency that he showed throughout this year and throughout last year as well, um, was, was rather staggering. Um, so yeah, in my opinion, yep, Rossi is the greatest of all time. I, I, well, there's a, there's a few points there. First of all, I think Jarno Saarinen, if there's one rider that I wish I could go back and watch, it would be Jarno Saarinen. And, and again, you, he's a rider who we will never know the potential of because, you know, he, unfortunately, sadly, he was he, he was killed uh, at, at, just as he was getting his five, uh, 500 carry on, uh, underway. Secondly, about Rossi, um, I mean, I completely agree what Rossi has done, being able to reinvent himself is incredible. Uh, but, you know, Lorenzo beat Rossi on the same bike and if Rossi's the greatest of all time then what does that make Lorenzo yeah. just uh, uh, for the sake of argument uh, and then thirdly um, I uh, the greatest of all time is a really difficult thing to say uh, one thing is absolutely for certain Valentino Rossi is the most important and the most significant motorcycle racer of all time just because of the impact he's had, he's had on the sport and also for the reasons that you gave, you know, he won. He's he's won championships on five hundreds, nine nineties, eight hundreds, and he came within a whisker of uh, of winning one on a uh, on a thousand. Yeah, this is one argument that me and Neil have come back to time and time again, and it's something that like uh, anytime I'm over in Barcelona or anything like that, and we go out for dinner, you end up chatting for a couple of hours basically on just the evolved history of of racing and how different riders fare against each other and it's something that uh you know you, you can't really distill down into just a, a couple of minutes in in a show like this maybe a separate show is is something where we could look in, into it but i think um if you were to look at the last 50 years it's it's very difficult to be able to say definitively who is the greatest all you're looking at is talk to the people who, who saw them race you you see how they how they change through their careers and the one thing that valentino has is he consistently has been able to find a way to ride multiple different bikes at the at the limit this year was his 20th year in grand prix and he was still capable of winning the championship and that's amazing for me and it's that longevity that i think is the most impressive thing about rossi ago's most impressive thing is solely volume of victories and numbers numbers mean an awful lot in something like this but you also have to have to read into the numbers and for me, Rossi's achievements outstrip uh, Agos. And as Neil said, like Halewood and um, Roberts, there's there's so there's so many riders that you can put in there, but Rossi's the one that stands out. David as well, as you said, just for what he's actually done for the sport. He's one of the few sportsmen that transcends his sport. If you talk to people that know nothing about racing, they'll know Rossi. You talk to people that know nothing about boxing, they'll still talk about Muhammad Ali. You talk to people that know nothing about sprinting, they'll talk about Usain Bolt at the minute. And that's what Rossi brings to, to our sport. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree with everything that you say. Also, just to go back to something that you said earlier, David, you said, you know, Rossi, if he's the best of all time and Lorenzo beat him this year, you know, then what does that make Lorenzo? But then again, you could say, you know, Phil Reed beat Giacomo Agostini in the 70s, the 500 World, 500cc World Championship. You know, uh, maybe, it, you know, that wasn't... Giacomo Agostini at his very best the year that Reed did that. Maybe this year wasn't Rossi at his very, very peak, you know, but still the fact that he was 36, you know, maybe let's say five, six years after his peak, you know, the fact that he's still able to conjure up a season like that, you know, makes it very impressive. But just one more thing, I think one thing that you have to kind of take into to all of this um, is just, you know, the riders that were that were present whenever, you know, the kind of supposed greatest of all time 
uh, best riders of all time were racing. Um, and, you know, the thing that, that makes Hillwood and Agostini so so brilliant was the fact that they were racing each other, you know. Um, the same with Rossi this year, what he did in that field with Marquez, with Lorenzo, with Pedroza towards the end of the year, you know, um, was really quite impressive, deeply impressive. Yeah, and in fairness, Neil, I'm sure you'll agree, Joey Dunlop was the best anyway, so we... <laughs> <laughs> That's the end of the argument. <laughs> yeah, ex- no, I mean, uh, I, I again, I don't want to take anything away from Rossi because, I mean, like, basically, I came into this sport as a, ma- uh, uh, as a Valentino Rossi fan. But, um, he, again, there are all these factors, all these different things. I, I don't think it's a particularly useful label calling someone the greatest of all time because I, don't, I think it, it misses out so many factors. That doesn't mean to say that what Valentina Rossi has done has been absolutely incredible. What Jorge Lorenzo has done is absolutely incredible. What um, uh, what Mick Doohan wasn't uh, did was absolutely incredible. Lawson, Rainey, all of the greats. I think we've had a, this discussion a few times about who's your top 10 uh, uh, motorcycle racers of all time. The trouble is, I think we, we all have about sort of 20 people in our top 10, which is mathematically improbable continue on the questions about uh, the the greatest of uh, uh, of all time uh, craig Lowe, who is at cl underscore lfc on twitter says how do you think all the other riders will treat rossi this year has his legacy and aura been tainted too much to be perfectly frank i don't think anyone's going to be treating uh, valentino rossi any different to the way that they've treated him in the past i mean they've always wanted to beat him and they will continue to want to beat him maybe he will get just a little less respect on track um but then like i say i mean it didn't look like Mar- marcus treated him with an awful lot of respect on track anyway uh so yeah i i, I don't think it's i don't think it makes any difference and has his legacy or aura been tainted too much maybe a little bit i think we saw the real face of valentino rossi when it came out which is the you know, just a champion, just a racer, someone who wants to win and is prepared to go to almost any length to do so. Yeah, I think that um, the aura around Rossi is long gone anyway. Most of the riders that are up at the front of the field didn't re- they had respect for what he achieved, but they didn't really care too much whenever they were racing them. I think that the the aura left really around, let's say, 2010. He had won his two championships before he left Ducati, then he broke his leg, and then he had the... Or, He'd won his two championships before he left Yamaha. Then he broke his leg. Then he left for Ducati. When you go the best part of three years without winning a Grand Prix or four years without winning a Grand Prix, riders don't don't have that same fear of you on track. And whenever you're a Marquez that's come through and you were able to fight with him straight away, when you're Lorenzo that came into the same box and immediately was three poles at the start of his Grand Prix career, he didn't fear Rossi to in 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 view of his speed he feared maybe just the the consistency and things like that and after a few years Jorge won his first championship and then he was instantly the Yamaha team leader when Rossi came back as well that didn't affect things so I think that aura was long gone the only thing that's going to change is how fans perceive what actually happened in in Sepang and 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 at the end of the season yeah I don't think anyone uh, fears uh, a rider who they've already beaten. So, uh, as you were saying, you know, like uh, everyone has beaten, or oh, well, uh, Lorenzo, Pedrosa, Marquez, they've all beaten Rossi. Uh, so, no, they, it's not going to change how they treat him. 
I think one of um, you know one of Ross's greatest strengths throughout his career was always um, you know his ability to to battle harder than anyone else, to be more intelligent in the closing stages of a race if he was in you know engaged in like a in a battle. You know, you look at um, some of his best races, uh, Lorenzo at Catalonia in two thousand and nine, for example. Um, you know, Rossi was just that bit more daring, more cunning, um, basically to get the better of him. But towards the end of this year, we saw in Aragon, we also saw in Phillip Island, um, you know, Rossi being involved in, you know, a, a, a real intense battle towards the end of the race. And he didn't come off, you know, he didn't come off um, best, better than his rival Pedroza beat him in Aragon. Ian only beat him for that podium in, in Phillip Island. And I think that could be something now that we see riders just being a little bit more aggressive uh, with him um, if they do find themselves in a, in a kind of scrap with him at the end of the race. I think when you look at someone like Rossi, it's uh, it's easy to draw a parallel with, um, say, Roger Federer in tennis, where you've got a great champion that, uh, you know, over the course of, for Federer, it's a 15-year career, was able to win lots of Grand Slams, be world number one for seven or eight consecutive years. But now he's come to the end of his career, he's still able to get to, Grand Slam quarterfinals, semifinals and finals, but being able to win them is a different story. And I think it's similar for Rossi. This year he showed that uh, he was still capable of of winning races, still capable of finishing on the podium, still capable of challenging for a championship. But actually going out and finishing that off was a, a, a much bigger task. And when sportsmen get towards that end of their career, it's just the winning that becomes more difficult on a consistent basis. You can still perform like you used to perform in a one-off race, but over an 18 race season, it's very difficult to be able to, to beat the likes of Ferrossi. It's Marquez, Pedroza, Lorenzo. I think, um, you know, what happened at the end of 2015, um, you know, could people will look at how, look at the, the backlash against Marquez, how, you know, he was booed um, in Valencia, how, you know, there was the there was terrible reports about him receiving death threats, um, you know, the Italian press coming to his house and, you know, a kind of scrap ensuing from that. Um, you know, perhaps people will be less willing to engage with, uh, with Valentino in like a public feud, let's say, because they've seen, you know, they've seen how the, the the backlash can you know how it can come from from all angles from the public you know from the press different things that could be something that um, the, the riders will think about they'll think about they'll think about uh, twice before they before they do something like that with with Rossi yeah that's something that that one team boss did actually say to me whenever I was talking to him just about the situation he didn't want to be quoted on the record because what he said was that uh, when you go up against Rossi in the court of public opinion there's only going to be one winner. And I think that um, for for Craig, like his uh, his his Twitter handle is CLLFC, and uh, if he's a Liverpool fan, he can draw comparisons to Stevie G at the end of of his Liverpool career. Couldn't he could still uh, gain the respect of of players, but they didn't they didn't fear competing against him. They didn't uh, they didn't uh, think that over the course of a thirty eight game Premiership season that he'd be able to have that that sheer force of will to be able to to take Liverpool to a title. I think that's what they're thinking with Rossi now. Great rider, great champion, someone that most of them probably grew up admiring, but now he's just another rider for them. Next question. Okay, so the next question we have is from Derek Cabrera, and you can follow him on Twitter, at BulldogDMC. And uh, Derek's question was, with the success of the VO46 Academy and an all-Italian Moto3 team, would it make sense to have an all-American team in the smaller class to help bring new talents to Europe? And uh, then how practical would that be? And um, 
basically the, the VR46 Academy works solely because you've got Rossi back in it. It's similar to why Jay-Z was approached to be an agent in the US for basketball and American football players. People want to people gravitate towards a star. Everyone in racing grew up as a fan of Rossi, so surely if Rossi opens a door and says, Do you want to race for my team? It's something that's going to be far more appealing than if you're pretty much any other team boss. And I think that uh, the team comes in, they've got a big budget, they've got good sponsors, they've got good bikes, so they can be quite successful. The Italian Moto3 team hasn't been successful with the exception of Fanati's first year with the team. He was able to win races that year and show a lot of speed. But at the moment, the young Italian riders don't want to race for the Federation team. They want to race for VO46. Maybe if you set up an American team, it could work. But um, the issue is is finding talented kids to actually come through. We haven't really seen any Americans uh, on the on the world scene that have been able to come through and show that they had potential to be uh, a Grand Prix race winner. Ben Spees is the the last rider really to come through, and and since then we've we've seen Cameron Bobier be be touted an awful lot. But as far as I'm concerned, most of that's just coming from Yamaha America, Cameron's managers and. Uh, sponsors of his he he hasn't shown enough to show that he warrants a, a spot on a moto gp grid maybe he warrants a spot in in the, in the lower classes but uh until america sorts out moto america and sorts out a pipeline of talent coming through to get people into road racing there's not really going to be much warrant to actually have a team of their own because for and david you you would have heard this whenever we were at the super prestige when we were talking to brad baker and jared mees the money that's on offer in flat track is an awful lot more than what's on offer if you were to go to Moto America. The appeal of sponsors is an awful lot more in flat track as well. And uh, I think it was Baker said it to us that um, there was, I think he, he might have come up through with PJ Jacobson and PJ made the, the switch to uh, road racing and Baker stayed racing on, on flat track. And uh, it's taken PJ an awful long time to have a, a good reputation in the, in the world superbike paddock and for a, a young american to come through if you were to set up a team it would basically be based around one kid at the moment and that's not a sustainable model for you to be able to to build up a small class team but it also leads back to something that we were talking about off the air during the week about when michael jordan thought about uh having his uh his superbike team come into moto 2 or moto 3 and again that's where the the cult of personality plays in where American kids, they might be inclined to move away from flat track if it's to race for a Michael Jordan or someone like that. I don't know how you boys feel about it. I think at the moment, the major issue is kids want to stay in flat track because that's where the money is. That's where Monster and Red Bull are paying for, for them to race, that and Supercross. Uh, yeah, I, th- I think, I mean, you touched on some good points. There's a, a few things which to me are important. I think the uh, one of the big things about uh, the VR46 Academy is just the amount of money which is behind it, which means, uh, I mean, Rossi has built his, fl- his, 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 his dirt track ranch at the back of his house. Um, that is basically available full-time for people to ride around and the people of uh, uh, the people of Tavulia are not going to be complaining too much about it because um because it's Valentino Rossi uh, no matter how much noise they're making there so they have uh, an almost li- unlimited amount of time to uh, to to practice they also get a lot of practice at Misano which i presume Rossi is also paying or the, at least the, the the academy is paying for to actually rent the track and circulate on a on a grand prix track uh, you c- really can't underestimate the importance of that so Rossi is throwing a lot of money into um 
actually producing a really, really good, um, uh, a, a really good academy for young riders to, to to come through. And certainly, I've the some of the Italian journalists and also people high up in teams have not had a lot of good words for the way the Italian Academy or the Italian Federation uh, has actually uh, done this. So could it be done? I think, yeah, definitely it could be done. As you say, it would be good to have a, a big name behind it. But what, what it needs most of all is a loss of money. And I think it would also need for a group of young American riders to move over to Spain, uh, to move somewhere where they can actually uh, spend a lot of time training, uh, to compete in the Spanish Championship or the CEV Championship, and then to progress through that way. Yeah, I, yeah, I agree with that because it's not just about, even if there was a team in place, um, let's say an American-owned team with, um, you know, with American sponsors with a lot of money, you know, it's no longer enough to just be some promising kid that has grown up on, you know, the dirt in, in the US and come straight over to Europe. You know, basically, if you want to be successful in Moto3 these days, you need to have one, two years in the, you know, the Spanish, well, I guess it's called the FIM Junior World Championship now, you know, the ex-Spanish Championship um, CEV class. You need to have at least one or two years there to kind of bring you up to a, a certain level. Even the the level of that class is is you know, ex extremely high. Um, um, you know, there's been various stories about, you know, riders trying to get a ride in that class. It's not even part of the, the Grand Prix Championship or part of the uh, the Grand Prix Circus. Um, and, you know, there are rides going there for about two, 300,000. You would have to put up, pay up front to be able to, to compete there for a full year. Um, so it's kind of, yeah, it's, it's, it's a great idea, but you really would need to consider the the whole infrastructure. There would need to be you probably need to be a team in the the FIM Junior World Championship first. Um, you know, it's kind of like a place where American riders could go, bring their level up to you know kind of European level, and then make that step up again. So you know, it would need a, a huge level of invest, investment to do that. Yeah, I, I think one thing which is often overlooked. Um not just by American riders, you see the same with Australians as well, is uh, you literally have to leave everything behind you. And that, that, that level of um, homesickness, that, lef that the, the, the very fact of actually being away from home so much uh, can pray, place an awful lot of just, you know, just mental stress on people. The fact that you're surrounded by, you're in cultures you don't understand, you're surrounded by people who are speaking languages you don't understand. Um, it's an awful lot easier for uh, the Spanish and Italian kids coming into the into the Grand Prix paddock because they are surrounded, because there's so many Spaniards and Italians coming in there. If you go into, if you look at some of the Dutch kids coming in, I mean, fortunately, most of them speak, uh, speak English, um, but they're also having to, you know, there's there's maybe uh, in the paddock what there's maybe sort of ten fifteen people who speak uh, uh, who speak who actually speak Dutch that they could go up and actually have a little just to talk to them you know just to, to have a little bit of a conversation so I think that that level, that, that amount of of culture shock is is something which is really totally we, we, yeah. People overlook that. People forget about it. Yeah, that that's something that uh, Sam Lowe's has talked mm -hmm. about as well at times because yeah. obviously Sam came from British Superbikes or well British Supersports and then World Supersports and then into the Grand Prix paddock and he's been in the Grand Prix paddock for two years now. Yeah, yeah. so he's been in the Grand Prix paddock for two years now and um, he, he's consistently said that um, the one thing that he feels that he lacks is just having that experience of 
being in the paddock and knowing who the people are. And that's what leads to opportunities to move up through the classes, move up from one team to the other. He came in and he struggled in his first year. And then last year he turned things around and he was able to show his speed. But he said that uh, the biggest thing for him was just being able to learn the paddock, be able to understand it. And that is something that American riders have traditionally struggled to, to do. And that's whether they're, they're riders, drivers in Formula One or, or different classes of racing. They're used to being in America. They're used to being at home and having to move across yeah. half the world is something that they've generally <laughs> struggled to do. Someone like PJ Jacobson made yeah. a, a big effort. He even lived in Northern Ireland. And as Neil will tell you, where uh, he was living in Tandragee was probably the uh, the worst part of Northern Ireland to live in. Um, <laughs> I was a Cookstown. Um, and, you know, this was a kid from upstate New York that came across to, to Northern Ireland, but he was committed to giving himself the best chance to actually win. So he, he ingrained himself in a local community. And you talk to him now and he'll, he'll, he'll talk about how much he actually enjoyed living in Northern Ireland and how mm. it's helped him now. There is, you don't see that uh, that drive from an awful lot of the American kids. And a lot of that, I think, just comes from the fact that Supercross starts this weekend and they can make a good living racing Supercross and that's where they'll stay. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you look at, uh, to, to go back to the, 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 the culture thing, Jack Miller, Casey Stoner, they both basically gave up everything and came over to Europe and... Uh, uh, and try to make it in in MotoGP, and you and you have to be willing to do that. And uh, as you say, it's a big step. And uh, there are other classes which are which are or other branches of sport, other other disciplines which are more appealing. Yeah, I think when you look as well at someone like Casey, he came over and all the family's eggs were put into his basket. He had all that pressure of having to effectively um, be the breadwinner for the entire family and. That's something that clearly drove him on early in his career. And it probably also affected him where suddenly whenever he came to the end of his career, he didn't want to have that responsibility anymore. He didn't need to have it. He'd already been doing it for 12 or 13 years. And it's uh, being, being in that position to have all that pressure put on you. It's either going to make you sink or swim for someone like Casey. It made him hugely successful. But for other riders, it can effectively bankrupt their family and leave them where they're struggling just to make ends meet. And that's an awful lot of pressure. And maybe in America, whenever you do have the potential to make money, flat track, supercross, motocross, maybe you don't have that uh, that drive or that desire to, to put your family through that as well. Exactly. Also, I think the, um, uh, I think the, the culture of the paddock has changed as well. If you look back uh, 20, 25 years, it was very, it was a very American paddock. Uh, there was a lot of Americans and Australians in the paddock. Now, I think there are much more uh, Spaniards and, and Italians there. Uh, and the number of English speakers is sort of dying out a little bit. Yeah, absolutely, and and it's kind of like a vicious circle because because the um, you know the well of, of American talent has kind of dried up in recent years. Um, you know now uh, we don't have any American riders in the Grand Prix classes at all. If you compare that to the early '90s when you know pretty much every other weekend on the cover of Road Racing World or Cycle News you would have pictures of Rainey or Lawson, Schwanz, um, you know. Basically, for young kids, that's that's something to aspire to. When you know, when you have a, a rider uh, with such a high profile doing something in Europe, that makes you, you know, it gives you a little bit of, you know, it fuels your dreams, I guess you could say. And nowadays, American kids don't have that. You know, PJ Jacobson is, you know, is going to be a, a fancy runner in the World Super Sport Championship this year. Nikki Hayden, 
you know, his um, you know his Grand Prix career is, is behind him now. Um, he's got a chance to do something in World Superbikes. But, you know, they don't have that that name, that Rennie, um, you know, even like Colin Edwards or, or Nicky Hayden, they, that Grand Prix name that they can look to and think, okay, that's the lifestyle I want to lead. I want to aspire to become that person. I want to sacrifice everything to become that person. And I think that's, that, that's, that's a problem as well. Well, that leads into, we've got a couple of questions just about World Superbikes as well. And one of the questions was from Paul Van Vliet. Uh, Paul Van Vliet? David. Yes, Paul, uh, Paul Van Vliet. Paul Van Vliet. And, and on Twitter, Paul is on at 46paul21. And uh, he asks how Honda will perform in World Superbikes, whether they can win races. And uh, obviously that's something that's going to affect Nicky. Neil, we were down at the Hareth test and we were talking to Nicky and we saw him out on track. What did you think of the bike? It looked like he was able to get pretty close to the limit straight away. Yeah, it seemed that uh, it seemed uh, as though he was he was already up to speed. He was already finding its limits and being able to push quite hard. Um, one of the things I think that he was having to learn that he found most challenging was uh, the Pirelli qualifying tire. Uh, but other than that, he said like you know he found you know the ability to get up to speed straight away. Um, I think Nicky is you know an exceptional an exceptional talent. I think he's you know it's it's great that he's in World Superbikes. Um, I think he can be, you know, a podium guy. I think he can do, you know, what Van der Mark did this year, which is kind of, you know, occasionally, maybe, maybe, um, maybe usually, um, be a presence in the fight for the podium. Um, it's just as he was saying in Hareth, you know, his progress has been good. He's happy with where he is, but when compared to what Kawasaki are doing, you know, he can't be happy because those guys just seem to have such an extra edge on the rest of the field. So yeah, so I think. Hayden could be, you know, he's going to be a factor in, in podium fights, maybe occasionally for the race win. Um, but this year in particular, I think a, a championship challenge will just be beyond them. Uh, I, I think you're right. The the, the Honda rider, rider seems to be looking much more for, uh, towards 2017 when, the, when there's actually going to be a good bike coming rather than 2016, which is sort of sitting them in a holding pattern, trying to learn as much as they can and, and, and looking forward. I'm actually quite looking forward to seeing Nicky Hayden on the Pirelli qualifiers because Hayden on qualifying tyres in MotoGP was absolutely awesome. He was just absolutely fantastic. If you look at his qualifying... Uh, when we had qualifying tyres, um, he was absolutely amongst the best. Doing a single fast fast lap on soft rubber, that was his speciality. So, yeah, that's that's. it's going to be interesting to see once he actually gets up to speed. Yeah, I, I personally think that the best thing for Nicky is actually coming on to a bike that's not going to be, well, not ultimately competitive. He might be able to finish on the podium sometimes, maybe in the wet challenge for a win. But being able to actually just go to World Superbikes and spend the the 2016 season just being able to to learn how to ride a superbike again without the pressure of the expectation of having to win if he came out and he was on the new r1 there'd be an awful lot of pressure on him to go in and from the first round of philip island be competitive be able to win and now he's just able to to learn everything and with van der mark as a teammate he's got a, a good yardstick to measure himself against as well yeah absolutely. yeah totally absolutely. agree yeah yeah Okay, well, we'll go on to the, the questions. I think the other ones are just about the, the race format, really, isn't it? Yeah. The weekend format. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that kind of uh, leads us into our next question. Uh, we have we have two people um, 
posting on Twitter asking us about um, the kind of revised format of World Superbikes uh, for 2016. Uh, Matt Evans, first of all, uh, that's at Matt Evans 111, must be an Aaron Slide fan. Uh, he asks, will the Saturday races kill off World Superbike attendances for good? And Craig Lowe also asks uh, for our views on the new revised World Superbike format. So, um, so Steve, first of all, really, what, what are the changes uh, that, that Dorna have proposed um, for the, the World Superbike scheduling for 2016? Uh, well, the biggest change and the one that's going to impact fans is that we'll see a Saturday race and a Sunday race. Personally, I think that one of the major selling points for superbikes is two races on a Sunday. But uh, when you go to a, when you go to a race and you see just awful attendance figures, like at uh, Donington Park this year for the, the BSB round, I was at it at Easter weekend and there was twenty five thousand people there on qualifying day or something like that. And then for the World Superbike race, there was less than ten thousand. And I think working ahead with the two races on Sunday model clearly wasn't working. And I think maybe making this change to offering a Saturday race could make it where people would be more inclined to buy a weekend ticket and actually go to the track and stay in the area on the Saturday night. So it could well be something that will end up uh, helping the series in the long term. The one thing about it is it's at the moment it's the change that's being made for 2016 nothing set in stone dorna have made it perfectly clear that uh, they're going to try different things with world superbikes and that's where we we could end up with some different ideas coming back in where they try and just shake things up i think it could be quite beneficial for the championship to be honest david what what do you think of it well i think the 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 real problem with World Superbikes, or, or the problem that it had was the change where they went from uh, afternoon races to a race, I think, in the morning uh, and a race in the afternoon. Now, the, the reasons for doing that were understandable. They were uh, basically they were always having their races clash with either MotoGP or Formula One. Um, uh, so they wanted for the TV coverage to actually have the races be televised which was which meant having a race i think at like 11 o'clock in the morning or something yeah, like yeah. that um I, I think for most people is people are just not they're not even uh, not awake enough to be watching motorcycle racing at 11 o'clock they they expect it to be in the afternoon and because it wasn't in the afternoon uh, it, it lost a lot of popularity so now they've had to make this other change where they've got a uh, uh, the qualifying in the morning on the Saturday and then the, the, the race in the afternoon on Saturday uh, or race one on uh, on Saturday and race two on, on Sunday to be perfectly frank, I think the biggest difference is not going to be the timing of the races, but actually filling in the rest of the time during uh, during the weekend. Because what what fans want is a big full weekend of entertainment. Um, uh, obviously, World Superbikes is the big attraction, but uh, I mean. Going to BSB races, what you notice is that is they fill every waking second of the day with entertainment. There's people down on the grids interviewing over the uh, over the broadcast system, over the loudspeakers, interviewing all of the riders, talking to all the riders. So there's something going on that you don't get five minutes of silence of, uh, of of nothing happening during a BSB weekend. And I think that really is the is the pattern for World Superbikes to follow to, to, to give the fans a lot of things to fill their time with. Yeah, I think it's trying to figure out exactly how fans want to consume a race weekend. When you're at the track, it's a very different experience to when you're at home. And I think an awful lot of sports have gotten on to the fact that people just don't sit down to watch seven hours of sport anymore you look at uh, sports like golf they're having an awful problem where around the golf in a competition takes five six hours to show on tv 
and people aren't sitting down to watch that. And that's what uh, the issue is for World Superbikes now at the moment. When you've got stock, thous, World Super Sport, World Superbikes, if you're trying to put that all onto a Sunday as race day feature, it's very difficult to be able to make people sit down from half 10 in the morning until two o'clock, three o'clock in the afternoon. And that's where this change could actually come in quite useful. But if you're at the track, are you going to be happy if you've only got, say, a World Super Sport race, a, a stock race and a World Superbike race? If that's what, what your Sunday entertainment is, you're going to get an awful lot of fans. I think they should get more uh, value for their money on a Sunday. Yeah, and of course the problem is that um, the, the Super Stock 1000 class doesn't run at every race. I think it has eight races a year. Um, and so there'll be four or five rounds where you will basically have one Super Sport race and one Superbike race on the Sunday. And, you know, you just wonder whether that is, you know, a sufficient amount of action um, to convince people to come and pay, you know, good money, 30, 40, 50 euros, whatever it is, um, to, to come and to come and watch the action, you know. And another thing I wonder about is, you know, if if you're not at if you're basically if you're watching the the racing on television, um, you know, a lot of people, you know, they have commitments at weekends, they have family to see, you know, things to do, and usually, uh, well, I'm just basing this on, you know, uh, you know, when I was a fan watching on TV, you would set aside a Sunday morning for that would be your time to watch the racing and stuff like that, you know, setting aside time on a Saturday and then a Sunday to watch it on TV as well. I think that's. I'm not sure whether that's going to, whether the Saturday race will get as much publicity um, as it would have done, you know, as as the second race on on a Sunday afternoon, for example. Yeah, when are you gonna when are you gonna do your uh, your Saturday shopping if there's a race? When are you gonna do your weekend shopping if there's a race yeah, on Saturday? Exactly. That's where online ta- online shopping comes in. There, <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that the, the the thing about it is like none of us are are well qualified to actually talk about what's. Um, what a regular TV viewer is actually going to look to experience because all of us and like in all likelihood, all of our listeners are diehard racing fans. I'll sit down, I'll watch Daytona 24 hours is coming on the, the car race. I'll sit down and watch that just cause it's racing. Um, I'll sit down and watch NASCAR on a Saturday night or, or a Sunday night just because it's racing. I'll sit there and I'll watch Moto America. I'll sit there and I'll watch Moto GP. I'll sit there and I'll watch pretty much anything because it's racing and you're all starting and, to realize now that steve doesn't really have a lot going on in his life other than racing also through the year <laughs> well what i think what gave it what gave it away was the fact that he called golf a sport <laughs> but uh But yeah, I, I, to me, it's much more about how they actually fill in the rest of the weekend. I mean, I think you're absolutely right. No one is going to buy is going to pay for a ticket for uh, for a uh, World Supers uh, or a Superbike, a Super Sport, and a Super Stock race on a Sunday. Um, that's what what two and a half hours of racing, maybe two hours of uh, of actual race action. Uh, it needs to be filled with lots and lots of local ra- uh, racing, lots of uh, club racing, whatever a national series. Uh, it's about combining entertainment well we fill a, a grand prix weekend with three warm-up sessions that are 20 minutes and effectively two hours of racing with three 40 minute races yeah but uh, the yeah, profile of those but, races you I mean, have to say you know the profile of those races is a lot higher i mean i think it would you would have to be quite a serious race fan to be aware of 
you know, more than say, let's say 10 riders that are racing in the European Superstock Championship, or sorry, the FIM Superstock Cup as it's called. Now, you know, it doesn't have that same kind of profile as, you know, a Moto3 race does, especially in somewhere like Spain or Italy, you know, where those races, you know, are as popular as the big event. Um, you know, I don't think you would, you have many, many countries in the world where people would go and think, I really, you know, they're really paying close attention to the, you know, the FIM Superstock Cup. Yeah, in the end, it comes down to personality. People have to people have to have a reason to care about racing, uh, and the reason people have a reason to care is because they feel some uh, either they love a racer or they hate a racer. Um, so they they have to have a reason to actually want want to go and and, and see it. And I I, I think. Um, at the moment, at the moment, World Superbike's biggest problem is that there are lots of riders who are admired but um, uh, not loved or hated, and I think especially hated. There isn't someone to hate. I think I think actually having a, a hate figure is a much bigger, um, a much bigger draw than people really understand. People love bad guys because if it, it, having a bad guy gives you a reason to support a good guy, uh, there it's. It's it all comes back to the story, yeah, storytelling, the stories which we tell each other. I think for for me, like whenever I was a kid and I was watching more superbikes, that was bigger than Grand Prix racing, and it was probably because you could go to a World Superbike race and see Shaky Burn win four races in one year as a wild card. You'd you'd see Tomato win two races at Sugo on the Kawasaki, and then make the move to World to MotoGP on the Honda. You saw, I was a. <laughs> I thought he was on the Kawasaki though in World Superbikes. That was a Honda. Was yeah. But you could see, uh, you could see um, riders coming through from the national championship and actually uh, compete at the front level as a wild card. Stevie Hislop broke the the track record at Donington Park, and I think it was two thousand. He was quicker than five hundred as well. Yeah, he was quicker than Rossi on the MotoGP bike on two thousand and two. I think that was. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know, like you you could see that there was something there that was unique for World Superbikes. We don't really get that any, anymore. You don't see wild cards coming through. And I think they need to go back to what the basis of World Superbikes was whenever it was arguably a bigger championship than than Grand Prix racing. That is a really good point. And I think uh, you touch on something which is at the uh, perhaps the the base of all of this uh and that's the the basically the clash between bsb and world superbikes um it's it's now two championships the world superbike championship uh um stuart higgs and msv and the whole organization behind bsb don't really want british riders doing uh doing wild cars in world superbikes because it lends the that they're trying to compete with world superbikes and by having uh wild cards it actually lends world superbikes legitimacy uh i know that the fim is trying to uh, uh unify the rules for the superbike championships uh, across the across the world again you're seeing that with moto america um they're trying to have the same set of rules for moto america as they are uh for world superbikes i think they're somewhere halfway between world superbikes and, and superstock off the top of my head but i'm not entirely sure i have to check um but what you do see with, uh, I mean, BSB's uh, stock electronics uh, system, uh, the the Motronic, um, uh, uh, oh sorry, Motec um, uh, electronic system, that basically excludes 
any chance or it stops them for it, it stops any BSB rider um, from ha- having the experience and the the uh, and team from having the experience to actually prepare a bike ready for World Superbike actually be competitive in World Superbike. Um, so that that to me, I think that I think that's the biggest one of the biggest obstacles is uh, having a having the two championships sort of competing against each other. Yeah, I think having uniformity across all of the superbike championships is what we need. But for whatever reason, we we can't have that at the moment. It looks like there's just a just a battle of wills to see who's going to blink first and. Uh, Stuart Higgs looks at the BSB is a hugely successful championship, so he has no need to change his product. And then World Superbikes looks at it that they're the world championship; they don't need to change their product. And really, ultimately, what's happening is the two championships are competing against one another and making themselves weaker. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if uh, uh, if they could work together, it would be a much. Uh, it it might even actually help expand both series make both series bigger but i think uh i get the impression that stuart higgs wants to uh, uh supplant world superbikes actually take the place of world superbikes um and obviously that makes for a difficult uh, that makes for a, for, a, for a very different experience and a very different a very difficult uh situation makes it almost impossible to actually cooperate yeah, it's it's similar enough to to something that we've talked about at times, just about how you need to make the pie bigger and just people working together is is in all likelihood the the key to actually help growing that. And at the moment, you've got two pies that are enough to sustain what they are, but not to actually make things things any bigger. Yeah, exactly. I mean, what we don't have is uh, we don't have someone looking out for motorcycle racing. We have people looking out for BSB, and we have people looking out for World Superbikes. And we have people looking out for MotoGP, but again, you know, we use, it's similar with Moto2. If you look at Moto2, um, there is really only the Spanish Championship, which is a viable Moto2 Championship outside of the uh, outside of the World Championship. Um, do you want to wrap up, David, or or do you want to do the um, the win on Sunday? I don't. I think we've got enough there. Yeah. Right. Well. Uh, thanks very much for your views, people. Um, also, thanks very much to everyone who sent in a question, including those who, whose questions we didn't get to. Uh, hopefully, we shall do this again during the season. Uh, thank you very much, Steve. Thank you very much, Neil. And thank you very much for listening to this edition of the Paddock Pass podcast. Uh, if you enjoy the show and listen through iTunes, please leave us a rating and a review because it really helps other motorcycle racing fans find the show. Once again, be sure to follow us on Facebook, facebook.com slash paddockpasspodcast, and on Twitter, at paddockpasspodcast. <laughs> so close. You can follow us on Twitter. I know, I know. Paddockpasspodcast. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you can follow us on Twitter, at paddockpasspodcast. <laughs> right, well, thank you again, and see you next time. Uh, I need to say Paddock Pass Podcast a few times because otherwise I won't be able to say Paddock Pass Podcast without tripping over myself. <laughs> okay, right. Uh, actually, if I say Paddock Pass Podcast enough, then uh, uh, JB could just cut and paste all the correct times that I say Paddock Pass Podcast and then <laughs> stick it into the places where I fuck up, which is most of the time. Yeah. Okay, I'm ready. Do you reckon JB is going to ever just get like a, a kind of robotic internet person saying paddock pass podcast and just <laughs> your voice? <laughs> 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 <laughs>
<laughs> oh, I am so going to get onto fucking a uh, 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 Stephen Hawking voice synthesizer. I'm, I'm just trying to find the one I have here now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Paddock Pass Podcast. <laughs> you have been listening to Paddock Pass. <laughs> exactly. Right, I'm starting. <laughs>